Welcome to episode three of the History of Metal Blade podcast, brought to you by Vinyl Me Please and Revolver Magazine. I'm your host, Jay Bennett, and today we're heading back to 1991 for two classic Metal Blade releases. They might not have much in common musically, but the bands Guar and Cannibal Corpse were both the subjects of heavy-handed censorship campaigns for their albums, America Must Be Destroyed and Butchered at Birth, respectively. In the top half of the show, we'll talk with Mike Bishop, a.k.a. Blothar from Guar. He was the band's bass player, off and on, from 1987 until 1999, and their vocalist since the passing of Guar founder and leader Dave Brocky, a.k.a. Odorous Urungus, in 2014. In the second half of the show, we'll talk with Alex Webster from death metal legends Cannibal Corpse about the controversy surrounding the band's second album, Butchered at Birth, and the censorship it endures to this day. But first, let's catch up with Mike Bishop of Guar as he tells us about that fateful day in 1990 when the Charlotte, North Carolina Police Department descended upon a Guar show. This record came out in 1991, America Must Be Destroyed. Uh, it's the follow-up to Scum Dogs of the Universe. And from what I understand, the concept of this record is Odorous Urungus, a.k.a. Dave Brocky, his reaction to an incident that happened in 1990 in Charlotte, North Carolina. There was an arrest for public indecency. What, 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 do you, what do you recall about that incident? <laughs> Some of the record, it, it definitely was, uh, like that was part of the, one of the big themes that was on it. And one of the big themes that we used in the, the film that we made. And uh, what, what had happened there was that we played in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time, uh, Jesse Helms was the Senator from, from North Carolina. Charlotte was his hometown. He was really sort of pumped up on this platform of, uh, like, you know, moral decency. He had taken a personal interest in articles that came out in the paper where they had described what a guar show was like. And he was like, well, no, not here. You know, we're not going to have that. I mean, we were barely aware of this situation that like there had been talk about, you know, that he wouldn't allow this thing to go on. Like we didn't really even know that. So we're on stage playing and all of a sudden I saw like something was going on in the back and I didn't, wasn't exactly sure what it was. It was a line of people that came in in the back. Uh, I didn't know who they were, but it was clear something was going on in the very back of the club. Then like there's these guys that look like they're wearing like, you know, cheap shirt and tie slacks outfits and they're coming on stage. Right. Which is, you know, and, and they're motioning to us. And I was like, I mean, we didn't, think that they were cops until they actually showed their badges and their guns. Um, and then we realized, oh, okay, these are policemen. Um, so they, they stopped the show. They came on stage and stopped the show. In the dressing room, they made Dave take off most of his costume, which involved a mask, shoulder pads, gauntlets, leg, leg pieces, and uh, sort of like leg gauntlets. I don't know what you'd call those. And, and a pair of of like big fake feet. They made him take all of that off except for the big rubber penis that he had, which was uh, called the Cuttlefish of Cthulhu. They made him, you know, he kept that on and they photographed him with it. And I remember saying like, you know, that's not 
he, that's not how he looked. And you know, that's not how he looked on stage. And they were like, shut up, you know, like, I mean, they were, they were pretty rough about it. Um, you know, it, it struck me as being very unfair that they were doing that. Um, then they picked up, this is the funniest part, is that they kind of looked around the club for something to carry this thing in. And, and they picked it up with like a, a pair of salad tongs. They picked up the, the dick and put it in a, in this big, you know, a white five gallon bucket. And they took it as evidence and they took Dave and put him in jail. We had to bail him out the next day. Uh, or even, I think maybe even that evening, like we paid, but he had to stay overnight and we got him the next day and we didn't miss a show or anything. Like we kept going. And, you know, the, the deal is that Dave was a, a Canadian citizen and he didn't have his, uh, uh, so I remember that there was some controversy because of his citizenship status. Like he was vulnerable to this prosecution. Um, and what they charged him with was disseminating pornography in the presence of a minor and committing simulated sexual acts, serious charges when you think about it, because like what, what it would have wound up being is, is, you know, he would have been a sex offender that was a registered sex offender. He would have been uh, subject to like, having his immigration status like uh you know i mean even though he had lived in in the, in the states a long time you know they could have sent him out of the country what he what he did was we had to kind of plead right i mean we really didn't have a choice and we did and i remember that you know biafra jello biafra was all upset about it because he's like you know you should have fought it and i'm like well he, dave did plead and uh the the trial itself was like completely insane and people don't even believe when we describe this scene but yeah it came from like the idea of phallus in wonderland which was the movie that we made uh, that america must be destroyed supported really comes from this idea that like you know dave the the the, the penis is separated from odorous the cuttlefish is and somehow like uh you know by the morality squad right like you know the the this group of people that are sort of enforcing morality um, and when the when it's taken away, like it tries to get back, right? It's like its own thing, its own character. In Dave's passing, like the cuttlefish is actually still around, right? In Guar, you know. So that's that's how that started. The story of the trial is ridiculous. I mean, like the the judge's name was Richard P. Boner, like, but and I think they pronounced it like Bonet or something, but it was B O N. E-R, like it wasn't even like a weird pronunciation of, or, or spelling of it. It was Boner. you kidding me. <laughs> no, yeah, so Dick Boner. They bring up Dave and they lay out the charges, right? You know, and he answered the charges with our lawyer. And we got a lot of help from uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, um, helped yeah. us in that defense. And they did later too, like, you know, because we had other incidents where this happened, most notably in Athens, Georgia, where they shut a show down, um, you know, and we would, sue and 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 get some money back for it um but you know it was a serious thing really um in retrospect and and you know we did plead guilty and we weren't allowed to play in charlotte for a really long time after that what's crazy to me about this is you have this you know there's this famous incident in the 60s with jim morrison where he exposes himself and he's arrested showing his actual anatomy this is a fake penis that he gets arrested for. It's like an extra level of hypocrisy. It just makes it insane. Yeah, and, and everything was simulated. Like they kept using that term. It was, we made t-shirts, like not for the band, but like actually one of our friends who 
was a guy who had been in war a long time ago. He made these hilarious t-shirts of Brocky's arrest photo where he, he still got to make up on the quote from the paper where they listed his charges. And it said, <laughs> he ate feces. Like that. at the time we had this thing called the crapapult. It was like this big, and we just put a bunch of oatmeal and chocolate syrup, like, you know, and make these big fake turds and throw them out in the audience. It's just so absurd, man, that these guys would be there doing this. At what point did Dave come to you guys and say, okay, we're, the next record is going to, we're going to discuss what happened. We're going to write some songs specifically about this incident that happened in Charlotte. Um, but at that time, like, Guar was at its peak as far as the complement of people who were involved. So you had, I mean, when we toured, we were taking, it was 14 people, and that wasn't crew. That was just us, the band, and the, and the people who were on stage, and the people who made the props and costumes and were performers. The way that Guar would make meaning is generally that we would have these meetings, and we would talk about what we were going to do. In that case, like, the lyrics really came out of the idea that we were going to write about this thing that had happened to us. Like, you know, we're going to do a show that involves it. Hunter Jackson, who was sort of the co-founder of the band, he was like, yeah, you know, I've got the, the here's some characters, right? The, you know, the morality squad, you got private parts, you got uh, Granbo. Um, and so I'm like, well, cool. I mean, Granbo, like we could have a Southern rock song, you know? So I wrote a Southern rock song, you know, Gorgor, we're going to have to have, you know, the monster, like we'll have him worked in there somehow. And the, the content just sort of flowed out of the event itself, right? Like, um, it wasn't like Dave said, you know, we're going to write a whole bunch of songs about this. It's more like in our meeting where we talked about what kind of show we wanted to do, it became apparent what kind of story we wanted to tell. So it's like, well, we needed to have certain types of songs. And then um, either Dave wrote the lyrics or the character who was singing the songs wrote the lyrics. And uh, that's very much how Guar ha has worked traditionally, right? This storyline for America Must Be Destroyed is pretty, it's convoluted. For people not familiar, it, it involves a, a, a dinosaur egg that is shot up, shot up with crack. hatches and there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex, Gorgor, who goes berserk, of course, because he's high on crack. There's at least one murderous pedophile, maybe two, I'm not sure about that actually. And then kind of in the middle of all this, there's a um, power ballad parody, the, the road behind. So I, I don't know, I, I don't know if I did a good job of explaining it's, that. That's a great description and that, you know, and it's a, like to call it convoluted is, is, is charitable, really. I mean, it's you know, because, and this is a side effect of the way that I described Gore making meaning. It would have been very different if it was like, Dave Brock is going to tell the story from beginning to end, or Hunter Jackson is going to tell the story from beginning to end. The real central narrative is the penis getting removed and then trying to find Dave. Okay, so the album is about to come out here, America Must Be Destroyed, and censorship kicks in again here with the Canadian authorities who insist that the, the version of the album that is released in Canada, it can't include the songs Crack in the Egg, Have You Seen Me, and Rock and Roll Never Felt So Good. Did this, yeah, was this a surprise? I mean, this is Canada. Well, no, and Canada became a thorn in our side later, too. Like, I mean, they, they didn't let us, they wouldn't let us put out Baby Dick Fuck. Mm -hmm. I was surprised. I mean, it wasn't like we could put the album out. 
missing those three songs, you know, I mean, and rock and roll felt never felt so good. It's a hilarious song. I mean, all those songs, have you seen me too? I mean, we're, that was Guar sort of really trying to push the envelope in singing about topics. I mean, one's, you know, having sex with an amputee, like, and all that, that grew out, that whole song grew out. I wrote those lyrics too. It just grew out of, there was this guy, band named called Bomb in San Francisco. Uh, and, and this guy, Mike Dean, brought to one of our shows this big stack of porn magazines. And we were, and he left them on our bus. And we were like, oh, thanks. But only like the top two were heterosexual porn magazines. The rest were all like freaky amputee shit, right? And I was like, wow. So I, I couldn't believe that such a thing as Nugget Magazine really existed, right? It's like, here's a magazine that's just for like, you know, amputee fetishists. And at the time we were like, work this into a tune. Seems like something Guar would be into, right? You know, and then have you seen me? Like, I do think that the idea for the dancing milk cartons that we had on stage came before the song, right? Like, like it was sort of written around the idea of, well, we'll have a song called Have You Seen Me. We, we, we should point out for the purpose of this podcast for maybe younger people who don't understand, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, they would put pictures of missing children on milk cartons. Yeah, and it would always say, have you seen me? And and I do believe that that campaign worked, right? I mean, they, they, they got kids back, you know, was, and that's a good thing. But of course, we had to take the piss out of it. And, <laughs> you know... Yeah, I mean, those songs were meaningful to us. They were meaningful in our narrative. I'm, I'm surprised that at the other one that you mentioned, though, uh, that they wanted to pull, which was... Cracking the Egg, yeah. The, the, the one where they inject, that's the one where the dinosaur egg gets in, injected with crack, right? I don't know exactly why they would object to that, because it's completely fantasy-oriented. It's like, you know, there's a, a dinosaur egg that you shoot crack cocaine in, and the, and the kid's born uh, crack-addicted, which... Brocky, for some reason, was obsessed with this idea of like, like the world had gotten so bad that you had a wave of, of children that were just born addicted to crack. Like, you know, what a horrible thing. And it was actually not not true. That was like the satanic ritual abuse stories of the 80s. The sort of plague that the media made this out to be of the crack baby was completely not true. It was like racist propaganda. Yeah. And it was it did have a racial overtone, man. There's no question to it. It was like part of the big sort of Daniel Moynihan disintegration of the black family, racist bullshit that came out. In reaction to this Canadian censorship, the Canadian version of the album uh, closes with a version of the Canadian anthem, O Canada, but the way it's played is it's played on a synthesizer that is mimicking the sounds of an infant crying. So who who came, who hatched this idea? <laughs> Man, that was a combination of our guitar player, Balsack, uh, Mike Dirks, who has always been like really creative. But the main person who did that was Dave Muscle, um, who was the guy that I mentioned who made all of the sound effects and would perform the sound effects live, which is like, I mean, it's an aspect of Guar that we keep trying to bring back and it's surprisingly difficult to do like, you know, because it, it, it's something that has to be done live even now, right? There has to be somebody watching that show and delivering sound effects, you know, because it's different every night. Like maybe the timing certainly is. So right. at the time, like, you know, muscle for years, he did it. And it was one of the best parts of the Guar show. They were constantly going and he would have these big and sonic keyboards that were like, you know, like two 86 key keyboards that, had little pieces of masking tape with like weird words written on the keys, you know, like like bubbles or 
like a picture of a guy farting, like, you know, and and he's just like, (laughs) like playing all this stuff, you know? Um, And, and that, that's where the, the idea for the, the crying babies came out of. And then, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you followed up America must be destroyed with this long form video called Phallus in Wonderland. That is a continuation of the America must be destroyed storyline. And uh, it was nominated for a Grammy <laughs> after all this. Did that feel like vindication in a way or what? You know, my father had always been a guy who like, I mean, his his main opinion of my music was like, my mother came to see a Guar show, right? And she's just like, it's so creative, you know, it's, it's wonderful, you know, <laughs> but it's so, why does it have to be so nasty? That was what she asked me. And I'm like, I don't know, mom, but that's just what we're into, you know, but then my dad was always like, well, you know, what's this going to do for you when, you know, you're 50 years old, like, you know, if you play some, if, if you play country music, now that audience never goes away, you know, like they'll stay with you no matter what. And he's right, right? Like, I mean, ironically, like, had I been a Nashville country musician, I'd probably have a lot more money right now in the bank. But, uh, you know, I didn't. Like, so to him, it was like, you know, he just wanted me to kind of play music that he liked, I guess. When when we got that Grammy nomination, it was the first time, man, that, my, you know, my dad was super proud. I remember that. Like, And, and then we did an interview. And in the interview, I said, understand it was a different time i was like this is a meaningless accolade bestowed by a retarded child that's what i said that was the exact quote and i did not expect that thing to get legs right but it did and they were pissed the grammy people were angry my father called me on the phone to be like why you have to say stupid shit like that you know it was like there was some blowback on that quote right um and even people within the band it was like you know well, look, man, we got some legitimate recognition. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, the members of Guar would not care about that, right? Like, like, you know, if we're reacting to this in character, then it's going to be so fucking what? We don't care about your Grammy, right? Um, and even then, it felt, honestly, like, to me, I, I did that in character. Yeah, you know, like, like, they've been trying to shut us down for so long. Like, this is just a fluke. Like, like, like we, we don't belong there. Right. Like, and you got to understand, too, this is before they had started their stupid shit of giving like the heavy metal album of the year to fucking Jethro Tull. Right. I mean, you know, it's before they really sort of embraced metal, period. And even when they did, it was it was fraught with everything that that is just a bunch of phony baloney bullshit about Naris. Right. It's like, I mean, that's that's what it is, is a bunch of phony baloney bullshit. So Guar, our reaction to it was, fuck, this is stupid. It's like everything else that, you, you know, you do when you're a kid, like you condemn it. Fuck that stupid. Then you learn about it and you're like, oh, OK, maybe it's not as stupid as I thought. Like, I remember getting the literature like on that trip. I got this literature from them uh, and I looked at it and I'm like, really, they do all that stuff for like, you know, keeping music in the schools. Well, that's pretty cool. Right. You know, but, <laughs> but the idea of the award show is kind of what bothered me. You know, I mean, I remember I dude, I saw Michael Jackson perform at that thing. It was wow. insane, you know. Yeah, I saw uh, In Vogue perform. Yeah, we met Patrick Stewart. Sir Mix a lot <laughs> had gotten an inflatable black ass, and he had it pointed at at the Shriners Auditorium in Los Angeles. Like, it was so fucking funny. Like, you know, it, it, I mean, by far, like the best part of it was the parties. Um, but but all of it really just sort of reinforced our our isolation from like what mainstream music is. I mean, you know, it didn't, 
didn't really feel like we belonged there. I mean, there's some interesting stories. I don't know. I don't want to get too far afield, but I do remember meeting the guy, little Jimmy Scott, who was a jazz musician, and he was nominated for a Lifetime Achievement Award. The man, he was so old, and he was this tiny, tiny little black guy. And I mean, like, he was old to the point of being vulnerable. And I remember him at this party, like a big party, like all these people around. And I sat there and talked to him for hours, you know, because he was fascinating. Like, you know, he, he knew so much stuff. And he just kept saying again and again, like, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And it, it really impacted me. And I, I mean, I actually got up and tried to find this guy's people because they just abandoned him. You know, it's like, like that's how you get the ticket. And then they go off and be jackasses somewhere. All right. So I realized that this, that this album, you know, came out, America must be destroyed, came out a long time ago to 30 years ago at this point, 1991, 30 years. Right. Um, obviously Guar has done many albums since then. Um, how does America be, America must be destroyed. Hold up for you personally 30 years on. I think it's one of the better records that we did. I still enjoy listening to it. You know, I still love the song America Must Be Destroyed. I still love the way that, you know, I think Glenn Robinson did a great job on that record. I mean, there, there's really good sounds. It doesn't really sound particularly dated, not all of it anyway. You know, Cracking the Egg's a great song. It's a great metal song. It's really, and it's cool because like, to me, like my connection to it, it's much more personal, right? Like I listen to, like I said, I listen to America Must Be Destroyed. I hear, you know, these bands that nobody knows about from Richmond, Virginia that we were so into. I, I hear Cracking the Egg and it's like, oh, okay, that, that, that Dewey Rowell, who was our guitar player at the time, and that, that's, that's what he sounded like. I still love the record. I think, I think, it, I think it holds up just fine. Um, and it's got some really great songs on it. Rock and Roll Never Felt So Good. It's pretty, pretty damn, you know, it's, it, that was an example of us like well, let's write a song that's really dumb like a kiss song you know the weird thing is that kiss is so dumb that even though they're awesome right like that you can't even really get close to how dumb they are right like 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 christine 16 i i it's so funny you said that i i've always thought that could have been a guar song <laughs> It could have. I mean, it totally could have. That and meet you, greet you in the ladies' room. Like, I always love that. Yeah, but the idea of Gene Simmons just, like, hanging out next to a school parking lot, like, who thought that was a good idea, man? Like, you know, they don't even have the, the, the backstory to, like, you know, like, 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 to support that. I mean, they're not supposed to be monsters. They sort of just are. Like, <laughs> Oh, man. Mike, thank you so much for your time, man. That was awesome. All right. Thank you. The war was ultimately vindicated for America Must Be Destroyed by the Grammy nomination given to the Phallus in Wonderland video the very next year. Burgeoning death metal kings Cannibal Corpse would see their album Butchered at Birth, targeted by censors for the next 30 years, all the way up to this very day. Here, we talk with the band's bassist and co-founder, Alex Webster, about Cannibal Corpse's goals for their second album, Butchered at Birth, and the increasingly disturbing lyrics being written by the band's then-vocalist, Chris Barnes. 
So your your first record, uh, Eating Back to Life, comes out. What kind of conversations do you guys have about where you want to go next with Butchered at Birth, which is like the very next year? It's, it's funny because we didn't do a lot of touring for Eating Back to Life. We actually did not do a real tour tour for Eating Back to Life. We set up some shows and they were mostly around the Northeast, couple in Canada, just stuff that was that we could do basically on a weekend or whatever. The guys were still working. I was still in college, you know. So, um, you know, when we, when I would finish a day at college and those guys would finish a day at work, we were up at the practice room writing the next album, like, immediately. So Butchered at Birth came out, I think, just a year. Yeah, it was just the, the very year after Eating Back to Life came out. Yeah, we just wanted to keep doing what we were doing and do it better, you know, and for sure, keep it dark. And, and I think um, Chris Barnes, you know, like, went really dark and got focused on he he decided he wanted to be the sole lyricist at that point you know he was really hitting his stride and had a vision for what he wanted to do with the lyrics we we were clearly a horror band when you listen to eating back to life we were a gore horror oriented death metal band but it became very focused on butchered at birth you know and a lot of that is with chris's lyrics and then musically i think it's just really dark and became just dark is the word I'm thinking of, like a really <laughs> creepy kind of um, sound. You know, we had some thrashier moments on our first album and Butchered at Birth was really just dark, creepy sounding death metal. You know, I, I spoke with Brian Slagle uh, for this because he's the one who chose the albums for the box set. He felt like this was the one where you really came into your own. Does it feel that way to you too? Well, like I said, I think it's um, the focus became extra. It, we were more focused on like, okay, this is what it's going to be. And especially at that time, Chris really had a strong vision for what he wanted to do with the lyrics and everything. Like really, obviously very extreme. You know, he was going to push whatever boundaries he wanted to with the lyrics. Um, so yeah, it, it's, you grow as a band, like your first album is sort of always, I think for most bands, it's kind of going to be, you know, it's not going to probably have the same focus as your subsequent albums, you know. So for us, some um, things started to co come into focus. I think that's the best way to put it. You mentioned that Chris Barnes took over the sole role of lyrics um, for this record. Uh, it does seem like the gore factor and the brutality kind of went up a few notches from Eating Back to Life. And then I think it went up again for Tomb of the Mutilated. Um was that something that you guys talked about? Was that like a conscious effort? Like, we need to do this. We need to be more extreme. Not, not really. We just didn't set any limits. And we just kind of let Chris have at it. Like I said, I think, um, like, as musicians, the musicians in the band, we were thinking about making the most extreme death metal we could. You know, Chris was on the same page about his lyrics. But we didn't tell him what to do, really. We were like, as long as it's horror or gore kind of stuff, we're going to probably give it the thumbs up. So just just do your thing, you know? And he did. And he came up with some really gruesome stuff, legendarily disturbing <laughs> lyrics that he wrote. They're brutal. And yeah, ditto for Tomb. And I mean, it's not like any of our stuff is particularly family friendly, but th those albums have some of the most disturbing lyrics in our catalog. And that's saying a lot. Well, I mean, what, what was your reaction or just the general reaction within the band when Chris was like, yeah, this song is going to be called Meat Hook Sodomy? I honestly don't remember, but I'm sure, especially being a bunch of 20 year old guys that were 
we were all into horror movies and shit. We were probably just like, fuck yeah, that's sick, man. Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. You know, and at that age and then all of us being into those kind of movies, you know, like all the George Romero movies and Lucio Fulci movies, we were just like, yeah, make it as sick as possible. That's what it's about. This is another form of horror entertainment. You know, like we kind of saw ourselves as a, the musical complement to, you know, horror movies like splatter films and things like that. And movies about like, serial killers and stuff like that that was what our band was about of course we have to talk about the album cover vincent vincent locks uh, uh amazingly disturbing image of you've got these two sort of zombie surgeons they've got this woman's you know uh dismembered corpse and they're pulling out the the, the unborn fetus and there's more fetuses hanging behind them uh, it's this is this is brutal. How much direction did you got get guys give Vincent for that? What we do now with Vince, for example, is some you know Paul is usually the the main guy who's talking with Vince, and sometimes you know I will or whoever, but it's usually Paul, and you'll just give him a title and let him go with it. Vince is a very creative guy. I mean, we knew from his horror comic Dead World, he was on the same page as us. I think he probably just let Vince kind of like, hey, here's the title see what you can come up with. And, and boy, did he nail it. If, if I had to pick a best Cannibal Corpse album cover, I mean, I love everything Vince has done, but Butchered at Birth is the one. Was anyone in the band sort of like, ah, can we, are we going to be able to do this? Like, is uh, can we put this out? You know, I don't remember anybody thinking anything like that. I think we were all just like, wow, that looks amazing. We were so under the radar that we didn't even contemplate being censored. Like I said, we hadn't even toured up until that point. We, we toured... We had done shows in the Northeast, but other than that, we hadn't we hadn't been to Europe or anything. For Butcher to Birth, we started to tour. And then people started to notice us. And, you know, once people start to see, you know, that album cover, people started to want to censor it. And yeah. I guess in hindsight, that's kind of obvious that they might want to censor it. But at the time, I don't remember anybody thinking about it. It gets banned in Germany and a few other places. But the Germany thing is pretty extreme, right? Because it's like it's to the point where you, they tell you, you guys can't even play those songs when you're in Germany. So, I mean, what, yeah, what was your reaction to that? I mean, that just seems really extreme form of censorship. We also were not the only gore, horror, death metal band out there. It just really struck a nerve, I guess, that album cover, because that was when it all started. And it has never actually completely stopped for us. We we still have censorship problems in Germany, even with our new material. Um, all of our censorship problems started with Butchered at Birth. Eating yeah. Back to Life managed to fly under the radar, but Butchered got people's attention. And, and Butchered at Birth is still banned in Germany, is that right? When they say banned, I think it's like on some sort of a list of things that you can't show to people under the age of 18 or something like that. So it's tough because, you know, there's been times where we've been able to play those songs in recent years because we were told by our people over there that, oh, it's okay now. And we're like, okay, cool. And then all of a sudden we'll get a notification again. Oh, now it's not okay again. So it's a little bit unclear. The whole censorship thing over there has been always been a little opaque to me, but um, most of the time we just kind of count on not playing songs from Butchered at Birth in Germany. It's, you know, we're just like, yeah, better safe than sorry. We just won't even, we'll make sure that we have a bunch of extra songs well rehearsed for the um the tours that we're going to do that go to germany that way we can create an alternate set list quickly yeah i mean i suspect enforcement has to do a lot with whoever happens to be in charge in germany at the time i'm sure some people are more 
hard line about enforcing the rules and some people aren't and so hence the sort of ever changing oh it's cool this time now it's not cool like you know we we had thought that the original lady who really can't stand us from back in the 90s was out of the picture like she'd retired or whatever but she's still around and she's got some acolytes that have picked up the torch of censorship for her so i understand why they would be concerned about graphic violence but they've always misunderstood where we're coming from and we're coming from the same position that a guy who, you know, like Stephen King has written stories about murderers. He doesn't think murder is cool. He doesn't want people to murder other people. I've, I feel I'm, I'm speaking for him right now, but I feel that he would probably confirm these things. It's a story. It's a horror story. And we're, we're doing horror stories to music. Some of them are extremely graphic, in particular, some of the stuff on Butchered at Birth and other albums really early in our career, but really throughout our career. But yeah, we approach it the same way. We don't condone violence of any kind, but we we don't want to have limits when we're um, creating horror art. It's it's an art form and it features horrifying subject matter. And that is what it is. And not everybody's going to really understand that, I guess, that it's just fictional art. Butcher to Birth obviously been out for a while, but I've, I've never really kind of studied the artwork in the way that I did in, you know, getting ready for this interview. And it occurred to me that, um, so there was this Beatles album that came out in 1966, Yesterday and Today. And the original cover was was banned, but many, co many copies went out to like radio stations and things like that. And it's now referred to as the Butcher cover. And it features the Beatles in butcher's jackets and they're holding like plastic baby dolls and they're covered in blood and so are the babies and so i'm i'm wondering if that at all was vincent's reference point he did he talk to you about that no you know i've never asked him about it because i actually didn't speak to vince until much later after that like yeah. there it just was you know back in the phone days you know like we're you know chris was the guy and then it switched to being when Chris was out of the band, then it switched to being Paul, who was on the phone with Vince. And we weren't all just calling him. So I didn't I didn't speak to Vince about that ever, really. I never asked him about Butchered at Birth because by the time I met him, he'd already done like 10 other covers for us when we actually met in person. He um, comes to our shows in Michigan sometimes and we'll hang out. Yeah, you should uh, you should check out the look up the Beatles Butcher cover. I think you'll I be a, I think Actually. you'll be a, astonished, uh, and it's quite valuable now because I mean I, several thousand got out there because they sent out a lot. Basically, the whole first round of promo went out before they had to change it. So there are wow. quite a there are quite a few, but it's worth money, and it's and and if you look at it, you'll be like. Uh, you, you'll be astonished. <laughs> well, maybe it's possible that he saw that. I don't know. Yeah. It also just could be a coincidence yeah, or whatever. Yeah. I, I, re I really don't know. Now I'm just curious, why did the Beatles do that? Because they're, yeah. <laughs> they're not exactly a gore horror band. I'm sure it was tongue in cheek. People thought the Beatles' hair was too long in like 1963. Yeah, yeah my, my understanding is that for them is that they, uh, that was a kind of a statement about the Vietnam War, like sending the sending children off to basically be slaughtered in, in Vietnam. All right, so Butch to Birth, it comes out 1991. Now, 1991 is kind of a, a banner year for death metal. I mean, besides your album, you've got Morbid Angel, Death, Autopsy, Dismember, Carcass, Bolt Thrower, Atheist, all these bands put out big albums that year. From your perspective, did you get a sense that there was like a, a movement building? And how much of it was that versus like maybe a little competition? For us, it really was just like we were just happy to be part of it. You know, and we were all so big into those other bands you mentioned, you know, like that 
once we were able to start touring, we started to get to play with these bands. Like the the first tour we did was with a band called Loud Blast from France. They they never wound up being that big of a band, but they were awesome. And we toured with them in 91. And then the next couple shows we did were down in Mexico with Pestilence. So right there, that was a band that we were big fans of. And that was exciting. We did a festival tour in late 91. I think it was just maybe five or six shows in Europe where it was um, death headlining. Napalm Death were direct support. Pestilence was in the middle, um, us and Dismember. So, I mean, that was a pretty cool tour to be doing in 1991. And that was a tour for Butchered at Birth, of course. There was just so much going on. And it was clear that there was a lot of momentum in the death metal scene at that time. And we were just happy to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, uh, I mean, looking back, I mean, uh, how did Butchered at Birth change things for you guys? I didn't realize how big we were getting until we were playing a show in, um, we got booked to play the Detroit Metal Fest or the Michigan Metal Fest, I think it was called, back in probably 92, maybe 91, but I think it was 92. I, I, I might have my years wrong, but it was going to be autopsy headlining, at least we thought. And then we got there and they said, no, no, you guys are headlining. I'm like, we're headlining over autopsy? That's weird. We're fans of autopsy. Why are we playing after them? But apparently they thought we were we should. You know, like, I don't know, are we bigger than Autopsy? That's weird, because that's a band that we looked up to, you know? They were around, just even if a band was around for one year, in in a 30-year career, it doesn't seem like a big deal if one band's been around for 30 years and one band's been around for 31. But, but for Autopsy to have been around even a year or so longer than us made them a band that we looked up to, you know what I mean? Like, they were someone that was inspiring us and probably not the other way around. So when we were offered to headline that show instead of open, that made me start thinking, okay, well, I guess we're getting big. And then also the people wanted our autographs. And, you know, in the Northeast of the U.S., nobody was asking for our autographs at that time. We were an underground band and people just didn't do that. You know, like it wasn't really a thing because we were just we were just one of the guys. You know, they knew us from demo to the demo days around there. And so to go to... um play over in France and Germany and Sweden and and to have people interested in our music so much, you know, and be so excited to see us and want autographs and things like that. We was like, wow, yeah, this this is actually starting to gain momentum. Yeah. Yeah. Uh last but last but not least here, what's your favorite song on Butchered at Birth and why? Let me think. Um Innards Decay has some bass playing at the end. I got like it's got this kind of slow part at the end where I get to do some little bass noodling kind of stuff. And that was, that was fun. But as far as like playing live, probably Vomit the Soul. Yeah, it's just a really fun song to play live. But it's all, there's a bunch of really cool songs on there to play. Um, It'd be a fun one to do the whole album sometime. We haven't really ever discussed it, but now that I think about it, it wouldn't, wouldn't be that hard. I remember the songs pretty much. We, they're, they're still in there somewhere in my head somewhere. So, um, but yeah, probably Vomit, or excuse me, um, but also Covered with Sores is great. So, yeah, this is a tough one. But Innards Decay, that's I, I'll say that one just because it's sort of a, um, that's a deep cut. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you. Yeah, I look forward to hearing it and seeing seeing the box set and everything when it's all done. Yeah, yeah me, me too, too man. man. Me, me too. too. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. On the next episode, we'll catch up with heavy metal legend King Diamond to discuss his 1998 album, Voodoo. Then we'll jump ahead to 2005 and talk with Trevor Sternod, the vocalist of Detroit death metal squad The Black Dahlia Murder, 
about their breakthrough second album, Miasma. Till then, I'm your host, Jay Bennett, and this is the History of Metal Blade podcast, brought to you by Vinyl Me Please and Revolver Magazine. Thank you.